0: Work of grace that you've done in Charlie's life. We thank you for the power of the gospel to transform. We thank you for Val, who is just a sweet soul here. We thank you for the friends and family that are here. Uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just give my brother a calm confidence in your ability uh, to speak your word with truth and clarity and power and precision and passion this morning. We pray, Lord, that your word would be like a lion. Uh, A lion doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of the cage. And that the truth of your gospel would roar in our hearts and remind us of the power of our King. And we would look to you to do in us what we cannot do through self-improvement and uh, discipline and trying harder, but you can achieve because you are God. And what is impossible for man is not impossible Mm -hmm. for God. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, help my brother uh, to share your word this morning with power, passion, precision. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Pastor Sean. <coughs> well, good morning, family. Uh, I'm going to choose to believe that the sanctuary isn't as full as it usually is because it is the 4th of July week and not because people heard that I was going to be preaching today. <laughs> as Pastor Sean said, God has blessed me with a ministry to those that are uh, struggling with the sin of uh, substance abuse and those that are homeless. So I go to these, these rescue missions and homeless shelters and uh, I have a captive audience that people c- can't leave. I go to, these, uh, I, I go to uh, drug and alcohol rehabs to, to share the gospel, and I have a captive audience. The, the, the people can't leave. They have to sit and listen to a sermon. And while you folks are certainly a, a captivating organs, audience, you are by no means a, a captive audience. So it's going to be interesting to see how many of you are still here this morning by the time I get done <laughs> preaching. Now, our, our pastor just lost all the color in his face, and he's starting to sweat. <laughs> you want the fan, pastor? <coughs> I don't want to make you feel any worse but if, if, if this doesn't go as well as we had hoped this morning remember it's those two classes that I took with you that taught me that taught me how to do <laughs> Discover Magazine had an amazing story about how a woman needed to be carried upside down in order to stay alive it sounds crazy but it's true The reason she had to be held upside down was because her pacemaker had become disconnected from her heart, and holding her upside down, it would reconnect. Louis Genera, a heart rhythm specialist, explains that before the pacemaker was installed, Mary, the upside-down woman, had a complete heart blockage, which slowed her heart rate dramatically. Mary's heart was beating at 40 beats per minute minute, instead of the, the normal 60 to 80. This caused her to faint and have seizures. And because of those episodes, the hospital implanted a pacemaker to boost Mary's heartbeat. It worked for a little while until she collapsed. Mary's husband noticed that as he picked her up, she would regain consciousness. But when he put her on her feet, she'd collapse again. In fact, every time he would put her upright, she would collapse. He realized this, that she would only be conscious when she was upside down, so he carried her upside down. Genera, after questioning in the insanity of the both, realized that it was because of Mary's pacemaker. The doctor told her uh, that the pacemaker wire going from your, your pacemaker to your right ventricle must have come di- become disconnected. It could have happened during a, a coughing spell you had. Somehow the wire reconnects when you're upside down and continues to stimulate the heart. The pacemakers are made made of a a little generator and a a wire that sends electrical impulses to the heart. The tip of the wire, it's screwed directly into the heart muscle, but in extremely rare cases, it could dislodge. And Mary's wire had become dislodged, and it would only reconnect when she was upside down. Genera realized this and had to go back into surgery to reconnect the wire to get her back into healthy, upright shape. This morning we're going to see that if we're willing to let Jesus into our lives, make him our number one priority, and submit to his authority, he'll turn our upside-down thinking right-side up, something that the world can't do for us because the world doesn't know the power of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform our lives. And that's the title of this morning's message. If you would, turn to me to uh, Luke 8, chapter 26, verses... To thirty-nine. If you haven't brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, please feel free to use the blue pew Bible in front of you. I believe it's on page eleven hundred. Luke eight twenty-six to thirty-nine. Now, as we turn in the Word of God, let's turn to the God of that Word in prayer. Lord, as we bow our heads and hearts to you this morning, we pray that your grace and your wisdom. As we try to understand the transforming power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what He'll do in our lives if we'll let Him. Help us to see that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the only one who has the power to transform our lives and put our thinking where it needs to be. Read, me, read with me, if you will, Luke 8, beginning in verse 26. They sailed to the the country of the Jerazim, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time that had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but would break the bonds and be driven by the demon back into the desert. Jesus asked them, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they, they, then, uh, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the, the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Jerazim's asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent them away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The story we just read this morning is about demon possession, but that's not what I want to talk about. This story is also about the power of Jesus to transform lives and how he's able to change our upside-down thinking. This story is about a man who at one time was completely under the control of Satan. This man, he was in a state of ruin. His life had no future. There was nothing for him to look forward to. In this condition, he was poor, hopeless, and in despair. He was in this condition because of Satan. Satan's mission, as we read in John chapter 10, verse 10, is to steal, to kill, and destroy. I imagine this guy had long hair and untrimmed beard that was matted and tangled. He probably had a a wild, demented look in his eyes, and he undoubtedly reeked of body odor. I was in a similar condition at one time. I was a homeless drunk living on the streets, and that was pretty much the way I looked. Luke doesn't record what the disciples did, but I can picture them scrambling back to the boat, looking for, for rocks and sticks or anything to pick up to defend themselves against this guy, because they were probably afraid of him. I can remember a time crossing the street and people stopped at the red light, would be locking their car doors and rolling their windows up because they were afraid of the way I looked. 1989, I was living on the, the streets of uh, Tampa, Florida. I was homeless. <clears throat> and I had beat some people out of some money. And uh, these guys would have killed me if they caught me. So I had to get out of town. I went across the bridge into St. Petersburg. In, Saint, in this particular spot in St. Pete, it was, it was a real nice spot. They had a, a, a park there. There was a, a, a real nice... Uh, uh, there were yachts and uh, uh, boats were parked there in the marina. And right down the block was... Uh, Outland Stadium, where the St. Louis Cardinals had their, their spring training facility at the time. And it was this long pier that went out into the road, out into the, in, into the bay. And at the end, you could drive out there. It was a two lane road running out. And at the end of the pier, there was a, a parking lot and a, uh, a big building that housed stores and, and restaurants. And there was a guy that sold uh, fish. You could buy these little fish to feed to these, these pelicans. The place was loaded with tourists. So I said, This could going to be a great place to make some money. So I set up shop. I found that I got a piece of cardboard and I I wrote on the cardboard, homeless, willing to work for food or money. That was a total lie. I wasn't willing to work and I didn't want food. I just wanted your money so I could get drunk. Well, you heard that. You're familiar with the expression, uh, my cup runneth over. Well, that didn't have anything to do with me. My cup was empty. People, People were driving by, locking their doors and rolling up their windows because of the way that I looked. If there was uh, traffic got heavy, people would stop three car, loads, uh, three car lanes away because they were a- a- afraid of the way that I looked. You know, so Satan doesn't have to possess a person's life in order to control a person's life. All Satan has to do is suggest certain things, and when the opportunity presents itself, we're all susceptible to this. This is why the Bible tells us to watch, to be on guard, to be sober-minded because Satan is always looking for an opportunity to trip us up and to get us in trouble. But that's just the beginning of the story. By the end, this man was sane, he was in his right mind, and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is an incredible testimony to the power of Jesus and how he's able to transform a life. And many of us here this morning can testify to that life-changing power. It goes beyond anything that the world can give us. When we take a look around, we'll notice that our world is upside down and it's getting worse all the time. In fact, our world is so upside down, we don't even realize that it's upside down anymore. Upside down has become normal for most people. And I honestly don't know how much longer we can continue in this condition. Before I came to Christ, my thinking was completely upside down. And it became normal for me to think this way. I was living on the street sleeping under bridges and on park benches, stealing and panhandling for money so I could get drunk. I did things that I never thought I would do. And it just became normal for me to act this way. This is just the way I was. This was my life. This is just the way it was. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 22 tells us what the mind of an upside-down person might sound like. Isaiah writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd, at, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and depart, deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue devour as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah is writing about the past, but he could be writing about today. Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun. See, he tells us that sorrow is certain for people who think this way. Another translation says destruction. Destruction is certain for people who think this way. When your life is operating upside down and it's in an upside down world, everything around you seems normal. Maybe you're thinking, well, we don't see too many demon-possessed people today, so things must be getting better. And I suppose that's you know, one way we could look at it. But I think there's another way we could see this situation. It's possible that our world is so messed up And so under the spell of the the wicked one, Satan no longer needs to possess people the way he did in the past. But we shouldn't be fooled, because Satan hasn't tried anything new in a very long time. He's still looking to destroy our lives, and he really doesn't care how he does it. When we take a closer look at this story, there are a few things we can learn from it. And that's why these stories are in the Bible, right? So we can learn from them. Uh, we can learn the first thing we can learn is that our condition is really no surprise to Jesus. Our condition isn't a surprise to Jesus. Verse 27 says, when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This man was in a pathetic condition. He was in terrible shape a total state of ruin. Everything he did was strange and bizarre. <coughs> he was completely out of, uh, out of touch with reality. He had no concept of what was right and what was normal. And I think this man's condition represents our world today. And if Isaiah is right, and I think he is, then our world is upside down, and that has totally lost its moral compass. There's no sense of right or wrong, There's no no idea of good or bad. In fact, it's just the opposite. Good has become bad, and bad has become good. Right is wrong, wrong is right. That's the condition of our world today. And it seems like there's no solution to it. And it seems like there's, there's no way to stop it. Well, this man comes to meet Jesus as he steps off the boat. But Jesus had no reaction. It wasn't a surprise to him. Jesus knew what his mission was. Jesus knew what this man was up to. John tells us in chapter 2 of his gospel that Jesus didn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. He created us. He knows what we were designed to be. He knows that we were created in the image of God. But he also knows that we're fallen from that created state and therefore fallen creatures. And in our fallen condition, we're prone to all sorts of evil, temptation, and sin. But John also says in John chapter 3 verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us struggle with our faith in Christ because of our past. I know I did. Our past sins haunt us. Even though we believe and even though we understand the message of the gospel and are in fact saved, we struggle with these feelings of unworthiness. We're reluctant to approach God because we realize just how unworthy we are. We know what our sins are, how terrible they are, so we we feel guilty, we feel condemned and undeserving. We struggle to believe that God could actually love us, let alone forgive us and receive receive us into his family and call us his children, and it becomes a struggle for some of us. And maybe you're sitting here this morning feeling that way. Maybe you're feeling that Jesus could never love me, He could never forgive me for those things that I did. That's not true. Jesus loves you more than you could ever think or imagine. And nothing should keep us from being all we can be in Christ because he isn't surprised by those things that we've done. If this story teaches us anything, it teaches that Jesus can reach the most hardened sinner and that nothing or no one could possibly be a surprise to him. He knows where we've been. He knows what we've done. And all he asks is that we come to him in faith and he'll deal with all the rest. The second lesson we can take away from our story is that the world is powerless to help the lost. The world is powerless to help the lost. In Matthew 15, it tells that there are blind guides and if uh, the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And what he means here is that those who are spiritually blind have no business trying to fix spiritual problems. Note in our text the poor results the people had when they they tried to deal with this demon-possessed man. He needed a power greater than himself. He needed Jesus. But his helpers didn't know the power of Jesus personally. They didn't know how Jesus could change a person's life, so they couldn't show him the power of Jesus. And when a demon took control of this man, their only remedy, as it says in verse 29, was to keep him under guard and bound with chains and shackles. Now here's this poor guy who simply needed help. But instead of helping him, they put him in chains. They gave him more bondage, not less. Now, I realize we're dealing with a, 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 a demon, a real-life spiritual being, untamable, at least by human means. But that makes my point. You can't bind a demon with chains. It's a spiritual problem. And this man had a spiritual problem. And what this shows us is that the world doesn't know how to help us in our deepest need. And what I suggest to you that just as this man's deepest need was a spiritual problem, that's our deepest need, too. When we try to meet our our deepest need using uh, non-spiritual solutions or worldly remedies, then we're probably going to make matters worse. It creates more problems, and that leads to greater bondage as it did with this man. We try therapy, medication, different philosophies, self-help books, all in an honest attempt to treat a spiritual need. Second Corinthians chapter 15, we read about a king, a good king, King Asa of Judah. The prophet Azariah came to him and said, Hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And then in the very next chapter, Second Chronicles 16, we read that Asa was afflicted with a, a, feet, a disease in his feet. And it says, even though his disease was severe, he did not seek the help of the Lord, but only the physicians. Isn't it interesting that, it's in it, because Asa, here's Asa, who's, who's thought to be a godly king. But when trouble hit him, the first thing he did was run to secular solutions, not the spiritual. And God rebuked him for it through the prophet. When we seek the world's wisdom instead of the Lord's, we're probably going to be disappointed. We need to seek the Lord first. There might not be anything wrong with those other solutions, but we have to seek the Lord first and let him lead us from there. He might very well say, try this medication or that medication or go to this doctor or that doctor, but we have to seek the Lord and let him lead us and see where he tells us to go. In fact, Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, we should seek the Lord while he's near, while he's still, excuse me, we should seek the Lord while he may still be found and call on him while he's near. That's our privilege as believers, isn't it? We can call upon God any time we need Him. The world means well, but the world is powerless to help us in the deepest need of our heart. We leave our care in the hands of others, but we belong to Jesus. And what we learn from this is that the world is powerless to meet our deepest spiritual need. The third lesson we can learn is that God wants us to make Him first in our lives. God wants to be number one in our lives. It's sort of funny, don't you think? These demons know that their number is up and that Jesus is going to deal with them, so they start a conversation with them. Uh, hey, Jesus, can you do us a favor? We don't want to be cast into the abyss, or as another translation calls it, the bottomless pit. So can you let us go into those pigs over there? Why did Jesus permit it? He allowed the demons to go into the pigs and eventually to their death. Why would he do this? Well, I think if you were to read into the text, uh, I think you'd find that the reason Jesus allowed the demons to go into the pigs and eventually to their death was probably because he wanted to make deviled ham. Hmm. Just checking to see if you're still paying attention. No, no, of course that wasn't it. I think Jesus, I think Jesus allowed it to get someone's attention. See, the people of the town of the Jerazines didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They never would have paid attention to him any other way. They had no real interest in Jesus until he hit them where it hurt the most, their pocketbooks. You see, for them, this was an economic disaster which forced them to come, to say, to come as it says in verse 35, to see what, hap- see what happened. They had to come to Christ. And what's one sure way for Jesus to get our attention? He permits our pigs to die. See, Christ's journey into the country of the Gerizim was somewhat unusual. The Gospels tell us that Jesus did most of his work among the Jewish people, although he did minister to the, and encountered the Gentiles, you know, some of the time, but the Jews received the bulk of of his attention, and he spent most of his time in the predominantly uh, Jewish regions of Galilee and Judea. The Gevesians, however, they they were uh, uh, located in a territory called the Decapolis. It was a group of uh, ten cities, and the majority of the population were Gentiles. So we shouldn't be surprised that there was a a great herd of pigs feeding near the tombs where the the demon-possessed man was living. But why were these people raising pigs? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine it was for commercial reasons. These pigs were being raised to be sold to the enormous Roman army or to people who ate pork. It was a business. See, there are times when Jesus is going to allow adversity in our lives to get our attention, so we'll have to come to him. We can become so easily distracted by our pursuit of possessions and pleasure. And if we love our swine more than we love Jesus, he may allow our swine to die in order to redirect our priorities. Maybe a relationship you were in was so important to you that God allowed it to die. Maybe it was a business or a dream that's died. Whatever is as important or more important than Jesus in your life is considered idolatry and it should be removed from your life immediately. For me, it was alcohol and drugs. Sorry to say at one time, alcohol and drugs was more important than my family, more important than Jesus, more important than, than anything in my life. Well, here's something I'd like to read to you uh, from the book uh, called The Heart of Addiction. This, this was life-changing for me. See, I, was always t- I was always taught that uh, addiction and alcohol abuse was a, was a disease. This changed, this changed my thinking completely, changed my life. Listen to what it says in the book. Idolatry is the proper biblical name for substance abuse problems, whether you consider yourself a, a drunk, a drug addict, or a substance abuser. The problem is biblically labeled as the sin of idolatry, and it's a hard problem from within one's own sinful nature. The substance abuser seeks to please himself, with his God of choice above pleasing God. The excessive user of alcohol and drugs is his own God. He's actively serving and pleasing the God of self by using alcohol and drugs. This is idolatry, it's a spiritual problem. You know, I don't think God's main concern is about our financial success. God doesn't care about our careers primarily, I mean, only if it's somehow related to our kingdom experience in our lives. God's concern for our lives is predominantly a spiritual one, not a material one. His main concern isn't for our material comfort, necessarily. Oh, he'll give us what we need, that's his promise, but he won't necessarily make us rich, contrary to some of that bad doctrine that's out there. There's nothing in the Bible that promises riches of that type. God's interested in material things only as it relates to our our eternal experience or his heavenly purposes. Now, I wish this wasn't a lesson that we had to learn the hard way, but it always seems that we we have to learn it the hard way. I know I did. The Lord tells us in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bitten bridle, or it won't stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. The Lord says, I just want to talk to you. I just, want, I just want to tell you that this is what I want you to do. I just want you to do it. I don't want to have to force you. I don't want to have to put in a bit of bridle and, and make you go where I want you to go. I just want you to go willingly because I said so. Amen, Lord. Whatever you say, I'll do. I think if we learned to be sensitive to the Lord this way, we wouldn't have to th- learn things the hard way. We have to prioritize God and make him number one in our lives. But the good news is, and this is our fourth point, that Jesus can turn our lives around and put our thinking right side up. Jesus can turn our lives around and put our thinking right side up. We read in verses 35 to 37. Then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Jerazim's asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Isn't it interesting how much more these people were were more tolerant of the demon-possessed man than they were of Jesus? Anything but Jesus. They didn't ask the demon-possessed man to leave. They tried to contain him. They put him in chains, but it didn't work. But they did ask Jesus to leave. And here's an interesting thought. He left. No argument. You don't want me in your life. I'll leave. Anything but Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're unwilling to give your life to Christ, your mind has been blinded and your thinking is upside down. However, the good news is, and what we can learn from this story, you know, what most of us here this morning can testify to in our own lives, is that Jesus could put our minds right side up if we'll let him. It's a choice. We have a choice. He can turn our lives around and put our thinking where it needs to be. Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to transform our lives. How does he do it? by the renewing of our minds. The word of God does that. Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you or change you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's from the New Living Translation. The spirit of God uses the word of God to make us children of God. You hear that? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us children of God. As we continue to submit to Jesus, as we continue to say, Jesus, you are the master of my life. Change me. Transform me. He does, and he puts our thinking right side up. And here's the final lesson from our story. God left the right side up man in an upside down world. God left the right side up man in an upside down world. When Jesus was about to leave, the formerly demon-possessed man wanted to come along, but Jesus said, no, go back and tell your family everything that God has done for you. Verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent them away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Why wouldn't Jesus allow this guy to go with him? Well, the answer is clearly stated here in the text jesus said return to your house and tell others what great thing god what great things god has done for you that's because there's nothing more powerful than a life that's been radically changed by the power of jesus christ a transformed life is something that can easily be seen because it's it's changed from the upside down mindset to the right side up mindset and that's what happens to those who are truly saved and this has become our mission. We've been called to do what Jesus meant when he said to all of us, let your light shine. Be a perfume in the room. In other words, let people see what Jesus has done for you. Let people see it. Let them see how different the life of a right side up person can be and how it's supposed to be lived. Don't hide it. Let everyone see the transformation and the change. So he told this guy, no, no, go back to your town. You were famous for how wild and crazy you were and how dangerous you were. Now I want those people to see what, what happens when you come to Christ, when you meet me, when you come in contact with me. You're different now. We are different, aren't we? I mean, if we're not different, we need to find out why. Paul tells us in First Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I was the worst of them. It's an important verse because of what Paul's saying here. Paul's talking about what he was, not what he is. I was the worst of them all. If you still are the worst of them all, there's a problem. Each of us has to have a similar testimony because if we're still the same after meeting Jesus Christ, there's something terribly wrong and we have to find out what it is. We have to ask ourselves, why am I still that way if I claim to have come in contact with the Savior of the world? Why am I still the same? Another question we might ask ourselves is, do I think differently? Do I recognize sin in my life? Do I practice it easily? It doesn't bother me if I sin, or it doesn't trouble me at all? Or do I feel bad for committing a sin? When I see those old sinful habits starting to pop their head up again, do I turn away as if to say, oh man, I wish that wasn't there? If it doesn't trouble you, if it doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong, and you need to go to, God, to go to God and ask him, what's wrong with me? We should ask am I growing in my faith? Am I still reading my Bible? Am I staying in close fellowship with God and fellow believers? Am I spending time in prayer and, and doing the basics? Peter said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he's been cleansed by his former sins. The point is we have to keep adding to our faith. All of us do. We have to keep adding to our faith so we're constantly growing. And in order to do that, we have to provide ourselves with the opportunity so we will grow. We want to put ourselves in the right places so that we're in a position to acquire more knowledge of God, more knowledge of his word. So I'm constantly growing. Another question we might ask ourselves is, "What do I love more than Jesus? Are there other priorities that push God out of the way? Am I in love with the swine in my life? Am I losing the joy I once had that I'm not on fire like I once was? These are all warning signs. We want to get back to our first love. Jesus told the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, 2, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus spoke a parable back in uh, uh, verse 5 of Luke 8. It's a parable of the sower. Now, a, a parable is a story that, that Jesus would tell to make a point. I, I, the definition I like is it's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly purpose. The picture of a farmer walking in his field that he's, he's sowing and he's throwing seeds, those seeds are the word of God. And the ground that these, these seeds fell on was the condition of our heart, not our physical heart, but our spiritual heart, where our uh, emotions and, and desires are. And it says, and some fell on the rock as it grew, It withered away because it it had no moisture. The Jersey City translation is moisture. Forget forget about it. (laughs) And the apostle asked Jesus, what what does this mean? And Jesus said, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a little while. In the time of testing, they fall away. It says they believed for a while. What happened? When the storms of life came, they they gave up. They quit. We say we believe. We've had a spiritual occurrence. But what's happened since? If we've been transformed or changed by the power of Jesus, then we want the world to see it. We want to tell others about the power of Christ. We live in an upside-down world, and Jesus leaves us here because in believing and developing the mind of Christ, we're now right-side up. And Jesus can turn a person right side up, and call that person His own. He calls us disciples, and then He leaves us in this upside-down world, and uses us to turn more people right side up. That's our mission, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're called to do. And I—I I really think time is winding down. At least it seems so. The world is running out of time. That age of God's special grace, that window of opportunity that's been open for so many years, I think is coming to a close. And as Christians, we should feel that urgency. Time's running out. We should be telling people about Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What swine has taken a place in your life that it doesn't deserve and needs to be put in its place? What bad habits do you need to be set free from? Regardless of what demons you have, the transforming power of Jesus can change all that if you'll let him. You have a choice. Remember, Jesus isn't surprised by anything that we've done. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He wants us to put him first in our lives. We've tried everything that the world has to offer in an attempt to change, but the world was powerless to help us, and we've failed time after time. Jesus is the way. He is the truth, and he is the life, and the only one that can transform our lives and put our thinking where it needs to be. So how did this miracle happen? A story tells us that Jesus was in a boat and when the boat came ashore, this man went to meet Jesus. You see, this miracle never would have happened if this man didn't meet Jesus. You know, I don't believe it's a coincidence that you're here this morning. I really don't believe it's a coincidence. You know, if, because there's a God in heaven, there's no such thing as coincidence. It's God's divine providence. So someone here, I believe has a divine appointment with Jesus this morning. Are you ready to meet him? You have a choice. Today you can receive Jesus as your your Lord and Savior, or one day you're going to face him as your judge. What a shame it would be to leave here this morning without receiving that greatest gift of all, God's forgiveness. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. In fact, Jesus loves you more than you could ever think or imagine. He loves you so much that... He left his home in heaven and became a man and in our place lived the perfect life that we should have lived. On the cross he died the sinner's death that we should have died. He paid the penalty. He took our rap. Three days later he rose from the dead proving he was the son of God so we could offer the gift of forgiveness, forgiveness of all our sins, victory over those things that we struggle with every day and eternal life in heaven when we're promoted to glory. If you believe this message and put your trust in Jesus, your life will never be the same. You can live in victory in this upside-down world. Jesus will transform your life. You'll be able to put your past behind you. He'll change you into who you ought to be so you can do what you ought to do so when you leave this earth, you'll go where you need to go. But you have a choice. You You can either receive God's gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ or you can reject it. You can say, Jesus, you don't have to go through all that trouble for me. I don't need your gift of salvation. That's your choice. And by saying, no, Jesus, I don't need you, that's a choice. The Bible says, as many received Jesus, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. Today, if you would like to receive that gift of forgiveness, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you are today, if you're ready to receive that... To, to open your heart today. <clears throat> open your heart to God. I want to invite you to pray this prayer, knowing that the God of all the universe is listening to you this morning right now. There's no magical, no magical formula to these words. You're not, you pray this prayer, you're not joining Calvary Church, you're not joining some religion. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. So if you'd like to pray that prayer this morning, please, with all heads bowed, eyes closed, silently pray. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I failed you in so many ways. I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life, but I believe what I've heard today, that you loved me so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me, to take away the penalty I deserve for my sins. I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not my good works, one of what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Forgive me and help me to spend the rest of my life serving you. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you, you met it from the bottom of your heart, you're, you're what the Bible calls born again. Just as you were born into, uh, physically born into your earthly family, this morning if you prayed that prayer, you were spiritually born into God's family. And I would would challenge you, if you prayed that prayer this morning, before you leave here this morning, tell somebody. Tell somebody about it. There's people walking around with name tags on, and they'll they'll be glad to tell you what the next step is in your walk with Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, the name that's above all names. Thank you for giving us a, a power greater than anything that exists in this world. Thank you for never giving up on us, even when we fail you time after time after time. You're not surprised by those things that we do. And God, you don't get angry. You don't point a finger and say, I can't believe that you've done that again. You smile. And you put those strong and loving arms around us and you tell us, it's okay. And you give us a do-over. Oh God, you are so merciful and so kind. And Father, we come to you this morning with a very special request. If there's anyone here this morning being held in bondage by the chains and shackles of addiction, addicted to drugs, alcohol, sex, food, gambling, or any other vices, I pray that your word, as was spoken here this morning, will capture every rebellious thought, that they'll realize that Jesus and only Jesus has the power to transform their lives. And Father, I ask that you would restore their homes, their families, and their lives back to you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.